Welcome to the Middle Tech Podcast, this region's leading business podcast, shining a light on technology, entrepreneurship, and the future of business in Kentucky and beyond. Our goal is to advance the ecosystem by bringing attention to the founders, changemakers, innovators, and those supporting them. Middle Tech's content can be found on your favorite podcast streaming app, social channels, and YouTube. We encourage you to follow and participate in the conversation. Let's discuss and build the future. All right, thanks for joining. Uh, We are here doing a little bit different of an episode. Uh, We're joined by Middle Tech co-founder Nate up in Chicago. What's up? Uh, Nate, how you doing up there in in the Windy City? Doing good. I feel like... Whenever we used to record these, my update would always be weather in Chicago. And that was my first thought <laughs> literally two seconds ago. Um, but I'm doing good. I'm wearing my spring colors because literally it was like 55 yesterday. Um, so now we're catching up to Kentucky like a month ago. Um, and I'm, I'm feeling good. This is when I start to like living in Chicago when spring rolls around. Everything else is just bearable. But uh, you've had some some life updates. So give us an update on what's going on up there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we're recording this Thursday evening. This is going to come out in a few days on Monday. Um, but for us, tomorrow, Friday, um, is going to be my last day at Isia, the influencer marketing company that I'm working at right now. Um, I actually reconnected, uh, not reconnected, we've been talking, obviously, but with some buddies um, from Fuji, Michael Lewis and Sam Marks. And I am joining their company uh, starting next week, uh, Thesis Education. So They do um, education technology. They're combining education content and the platform that it's delivered on, which is called an LMS, um, in some really cool areas, you know, entrepreneurship and music to start, but they're hoping to grow beyond that. So I'm pumped to join the team. It's going to, I'll be the fifth employee, you know, startup grind kind of life. But obviously we do this. That's the kind of stuff I love. And it's Kentucky based. So you can see my face down there a little bit more here and there. I'm excited for a new challenge. Super exciting, man. Congrats on that. And we're, uh, Thank we'll, you. Have, we'll eventually convince you to move back here. I'm pretty confident. <laughs> I'm sure it'll happen at some point. Before we dive into this episode, we just want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. Uh, so to start, we have Land Betterment. Land Betterment is providing sustainable business solutions uh, on these old abandoned strip mines by upcycling them and putting sustainable businesses in their place. So you can learn more about them at uh, landbetterment.com. Or you can go check out our episode with them. That is episode 97. And then we also have the Johnson Law Group. So Brandon Johnson was also a guest of ours on episode 108. Uh, He is a lawyer that is dealing uh, specifically in startup law. So he has worked with companies like Papa John's, uh, WeatherCheck, who we've had on before, Instagram influencers. Uh, He has a ton of experience and he is also a Kentucky guy. So he is from Fordsville, Kentucky and attended the University of Louisville. And as Evan has said multiple times through these sponsorship reads, if you're serious about starting a business, uh, it's always necessary to begin consulting with a lawyer early on. And he is happy to do free consults. So if you're interested in learning more about the Johnson Law Group, you can do that at middletechpod.com slash Johnson Law. So to give a little background on what this episode actually is, we wanted to switch things up a little bit. um, And we wanted to do an an episode where we gave our audience and the community a chance to submit their questions to us that they want to hear us talk more about. Uh, And even though we may not be experts in everything they're asking questions about, 
we just want to have some discussion around those questions. So we have picked the top five questions uh, from the questions that were submitted through our email, through our social media. And I think we're going to have a really cool conversation uh, about things like artificial intelligence, uh, social media regulation, uh, technology in general. So, uh, and even a question that I like here from Isaac, Meis- Isaac Meisner, uh, if we could interview anyone, who would it be? So we're excited to dive into all that. Uh, I'll toss it over to Evan and we'll get this thing kicked off. Yeah. All right. So first question here. Uh, I'm hearing a lot of buzz around high job demand for skills with Salesforce. So for those of you that don't know Salesforce, it's the world's largest CRM provider. Uh, they're based out of San Francisco, uh, both nationally and here locally in Lexington. Are you seeing the same trend? If so, why do you think the demand is so hot for these skills right now? It seems like there's a very low barrier for entry for people that want to get into this space and get trained uh, and take advantage of these opportunities. Who asked that? Uh, that was Alex Fackler. Appreciate that, Alex. Um, so I'll kind of start off with this one because I have a lot of experience with Salesforce. Um, I've developed and worked on custom instances with Salesforce. I've kind of dug into what you're alluding to here, which is um, I didn't develop necessarily like code, but Salesforce has some really cool uh, custom uh, customization uh, tools behind the scenes that you can use. And I've, I've built custom instances using that. Um, so Salesforce, uh, I'll provide some, some general software background. So Salesforce, like I said, is developing a product that is a software product, a SaaS product called a CRM. Uh, the CRM category is the largest of all software categories. You really can't have a business without a CRM. What a CRM does is it helps you manage all of your customers uh, and all of your leads, all your prospects. Uh, it helps you support them after they've bought the product. Uh, it really does everything. And now it's starting to uh, organize and kind of control, in a sense, you know, Internet of Things devices. So physical things. Not only are you managing your customers and people, now you're starting to manage Internet of Things devices with with CRMs. So it's the largest software category and Salesforce is by far the leader. And so the reason that you're starting to see all these jobs pop up is because it's such a dominant platform and it's such a large uh, part of a business. You know, like I said, you cannot have a successful business without a CRM. It's impossible. And so why is uh, the demand so high? Uh, Because... There's a lot of nuances around CRMs, you know, depending on what kind of business you are, what your product is, how you want to deliver your product, how you want to support your customers. And in order to do that, there's going to be a lot of customization. Uh, And so you're starting to see people that only work and develop on Salesforce. So Salesforce is a platform. Uh, A platform is defined as something that you can build on top of that other other pieces of software uh, plug into. Uh, And Salesforce is by far one of the largest in the world, if not the largest. Uh, So that's why you're starting to see the demand is because you're starting to see platforms like Salesforce be the bedrock and the foundation of a business. You know, businesses are almost built on top of software like Salesforce. So that's why you're starting to see that demand. Yeah, you may end up doing a lot of the talking here uh, just because you're actually building a CRM yourself. Yeah. So take your experience building Simba and kind of the the practices and the principles that you've built into into Simba and kind of relate that uh, to how, you know, Salesforce was one of the first, was the first CRM software, if I'm not mistaken. To put it in the cloud. They weren't the to first. Put it in the cloud. Okay. They were the first to put it in the cloud and first deliver it okay. uh, in a SaaS model. Okay. So just kind of relate, you know, how Salesforce has progressed and how, how you're going about building your CRM platform as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the CRM space has adapted. So it started as desktop uh, software that you would, physically buy and plug in and put a disk into your computer and download it and, and use it. Uh, and so it was um, not in the cloud. 
Uh, it was on-prem is how you would say that. It was on-prem software. Uh, Oracle, uh, Siebel, uh, companies like that developed it first uh, on, on, um, uh, for software and for companies to use. And then Salesforce came along and uh, built it uh, in the cloud. And so what that meant was now you could access your CRM through a web browser. Uh, you no longer had to do it on-prem. You no longer had to use servers that were you know, in the physical building. You could have your complete CRM database that was across the country. Uh, and that's a really big, big uh, idea and really big uh, moment in software. Uh, because, again, when you can access that data, no matter where you are through the Internet, and all you need is an Internet connection, it really frees up your business and can allow you to operate in a lot of new ways. Uh, so that was kind of one of the big uh, innovations that, that came to CRMs. And really, in the, in the last 10 to 15 years, CRMs haven't changed at all. Uh, they've always just been databases, uh, uh, and you're starting to see other platforms start to plug into them. Uh, and that's how they've really adopted over time is Salesforce built this platform and they've really used their ecosystem to adapt and provide, you know, future, uh, solutions to their, to their customers based on what is being plugged into their, their platform. Well, what's happening now is for those of you that are listening, might be familiar with a company called Twilio. Uh, Twilio is in my point of view, the next CRM. Uh, it's not defined as a CRM. Uh, they are a developer, uh, API. So they're building developer tools. And essentially what they've done is they've deconstructed uh, the CRM and made it into APIs. Uh, and what an API is an app application programming interface that allows two different pieces of software to communicate to each other, interact with each other, and, and you know, um, transfer data from, from one to another. Uh, and the reason that Twilio is really important right now is because, like I said, they've deconstructed uh, a CRM. So what used to be a database is now pieces uh, that you can configure however you want to put together a CRM. Uh, and the, so the future of, of CRMs, in my opinion, is all about user experience. And so Salesforce is just this database that you go in and you put a lot of uh, data into and you keep track of all your customers. But as a user, you're spending all of your time on uh, Gmail or outside of the CRM. Uh, what's happening now and where the future is going is the whole workflow, your day-to-day -day job will be spent inside of the CRM. And you're just now starting to see this. Um, and so, you know, you alluded to what I'm, I'm building now, Simba. You know, we're building a CRM for the real estate industry. And we're building a very workflow-heavy CRM. It's not going to feel like a database. It doesn't even look like a database. And so for me, the future of CRMs is very uh, niche solutions because of Twilio. Uh, and it's very workflow-heavy, not database-heavy. Uh, and so that's kind of the, the big shift that we're starting to see. And again, the reason there's so much attention from you know a job demand perspective uh, is because it's such a large market. Every company needs one, uh, and it's changing fast. Uh, you know, Salesforce is changing fast. They're always probably going to be one of the largest, if not the largest. But a lot of companies are coming after them, like HubSpot. But the future is going to be Twilio, uh, is developer APIs. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You you said kind of niche markets and you know, specific CRMs. And in my head, that's where these job opportunities are coming from. You know, you, you mentioned like CRMs traditionally was a database of customers and you could, you know, see your last interactions with them and see what they ordered, things like that. But Salesforce, you know, as a specific example, has taken that so much further. They've acquired or built so many solutions where you can now use that data to target people on social media, to run email campaigns, to manage your shipping logistics. You know, obviously 
if you think about a modern business, the customers or the clients are the center of the business. Well, pretty much every operation, you know, centers around that and Salesforce can plug into that. But every operation is going to be custom for every business. So people need to build ways to connect to this database, connect to these solutions for their specific use case. And so the way that I look at these Salesforce engineers and I've experienced them is kind of taking this behemoth of a software and making it work for you because it is such a big platform that businesses are going to have to customize it. And so you get an engineer to do that. But I think it is true, like this question says, like, that's a relatively low barrier of entry as far as, you know, computer development goes, and it's only going to grow. So I, I could encourage individuals to to look into that. I think that's a great career path at this point. I think the average salary for a Salesforce developer is anywhere from 80 to, you know, 150K a year. Yeah. It's it's high. You know, the businesses are paying a lot for, for Salesforce developers uh, because of, again, how, how important it is. An example of how far a CRM can stretch is, you know, the CEO, Mark Benioff, I, I study him a lot. Uh, and in his book, he talked about how uh, Salesforce powers, if you have a Toyota vehicle and you get a notification on your dashboard, that's Salesforce. Uh, so what it's yeah. done is it's uh, Salesforce is connecting the devices in a car and connecting the car to the internet and has a profile on all the different parts of a car. Anytime when that profile changes and it needs to send a notification, that's done through Salesforce into um, into your car's dashboard. So that's just a, an example that maybe somebody wouldn't think of that is powered by something like a CRM for Salesforce. Yeah, I think the one of the exciting things for me to think of just kind of these new developer tools in general, and I think this applies to CRMs in the way that we're, we're describing uh, this position of a Salesforce developer, is these companies are now like building blocks that you you connect all these different parts of APIs and you essentially come up with this really robust solution that's very customized to your business, or you might even create a whole new product from connecting various parts of these APIs. So I think we're just going to continue to see more of that. I don't think that the demand for these kind of positions is going to slow down anytime soon. Um, okay. So that was, that was a great conversation about that question. Thanks for that question, Alex. Um, moving on to this next one from good friend of ours who is in law school, Joseph Profancic. Um, he says, should social media platforms such as Twitter have absolute discretion in creating their terms of service, thus giving them unlimited ability to censor speech? And if not, who should regulate them? So this is something we've been discussing a lot. Uh, we've talked about a lot on our Friday updates. It's something that's been in the news a lot with the insurrection at the Capitol. Um, every social media platform has been under scrutiny, has been in the spotlight because of this. And I like the way that Joseph phrased this question because I feel like a lot of the social media platforms, Twitter especially, have relied on saying, well, it's within our terms of service to ban somebody off the platform. You know, they violated our terms of service and that's what they're falling back on. Well, they're the ones that created that terms of service. So I like the way this uh, question is, is worded just because I think it's really thought provoking. Um, so Nate, I'll let you kick this one off. Um, should social media platforms have absolute discretion in, in creating their terms of service? Yeah, this is this is a tough issue. Um, I honestly, I, I don't know how I feel about it. I guess if I had to sum it up in one sentence, I'm not sure. I don't think anyone's sure. Um, I think social media, and we've talked about it on this podcast and on our Friday updates before, social media has become more than a place you could, you know, go to share photos or whatever. Like, it's kind of the lifeblood of public discourse at this point. 
Um, and when you think of it as a utility in that way, there needs to be some regulation. But never before has there, there been such a quote-unquote utility, such a ubiquitous way people received information that was also completely private like that and influenced by anybody. So should Twitter have absolute discretion? No. I'll say that there needs to be some kind of oversight. There needs to be some coalition among the social media um, players in the space, you know, maybe with the government. But should should somebody just come in and do whatever they want on Twitter without Twitter's discretion or without them having a say in it? I would say no as well. So I think we need to find some kind of hybrid solution where these platforms know themselves better than anybody else. But there's probably third parties that know the impact better than anybody else. And there needs to be some kind of collaboration to make sure that these places are safe and healthy for everybody, but also not discriminatory if somebody has a dissenting opinion. Agreed. And that's where it's tough right now because it's hard sometimes to find, especially on Twitter as an example, to find that the difference between a dissenting opinion and a dangerous one when it comes to things like the far right movements that turned into the, the capital insurrection and that we need to find that line because we, we can't dampen certain opinions, but we can't allow for dangerous actors to coordinate either. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I think we're starting to see the beginnings of, you know, uh, a committee or an organization that can hopefully assist in this sort of, I guess, regulation. So Facebook has formed the oversight committee. It's literally called the oversight committee. Um, and they've got a lot of good, um, diverse backgrounds of where people have come from. And they're, you know, they've got that website. I think I mentioned this on a Friday update, but you can go to the oversightcommittee.com, I believe is the website, or you can Google the oversight committee and you can see everyone who's involved in it. You can see the cases that they've weighed in on, um, what they decided on those cases. But, uh, to Joseph's point here, I think that they probably need to start digging into, um, you know, what the actual terms of service say terms of services say for these different social medias. I think that the general public needs to understand a little bit more inherently. I don't think, you know, I, I would be willing to bet that 99% of the population has never read a terms of service period <laughs> yeah. and would not be able to tell you what the terms of service for uh, an organiz- a social media like Twitter, or like Facebook. Um, Evan, we'll toss it over to you. What's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I want I want a few things. I want um, transparency. For sure. So I want transparency into the terms and conditions. I want transparency into their decisions. Um, and I want an audit trail of all their decisions and what led up to them. Uh, so that, transparency, I think, is one of the most important parts. Because if you don't have transparency, then you have to question the people making the decisions and the fact that there's probably bias. And if they were to be transparent, then you leave it up to the general public to make that decision. And right now, the general public just doesn't have that opportunity, and that has to exist. Uh, another thing is, you know, diversity in those that are making the decisions. Until you know, Facebook put this board together, there were boards within the companies. So there was, you know, a board, uh, a group within Twitter. There's a group within Facebook and Pinterest and you know Reddit, who were trying to make these decisions. Uh, and ultimately, all these companies are in Silicon Valley. They're probably majority uh, white. Uh, they don't have any kind of representation from foreign actors, foreign uh, governments, foreign countries. So uh, I want diversity because uh, the Internet's a very diverse place and you have to have uh, diversity for healthy conversation. Uh, and so if there's not diversity, then uh, it's going to be a very unhealthy Internet and social 
um, community. Uh, and, and I guess the third thing is um, there just has to be a third party outside of the the the, the, um, the social media companies. Uh, I, I don't trust them. Um, I love I love social media. I love uh, I look up to their founders. You know they've built amazing businesses. But at the end of the day, I don't want Jack Dorsey. I don't want Mark um, Zuckerberg. You know I don't want these people making decisions on behalf of everybody else. Um, you know I, I I I want some kind of third party that is a mixture of um, uh, elected officials and um, assigned officials that you know are diverse. Uh, and I think that has to happen, you know, outside of the realm of, of these social media companies. And so uh, it's starting to happen. You know, Facebook, like you just said, created the oversight board. It's a, that's a third party. It's not Facebook initiated, but it's not a Facebook group. It has nothing to do with Facebook. They just initiated it. So that is what needs to take place and that needs to grow and build. Uh, so I guess those are the three things that I'd say I want because <clears throat> um, I don't know what the right answer is, but I think the right answer involves those three things. Yeah. And. Thanks for correcting me there. It is the oversight board, not the oversight committee, if you're going to, to look that up. Um, but it's almost like we need a bill of rights or some sort of like document that is for all social medias and maybe even the internet as a whole. I think we're now getting to the point where the internet is so powerful, social media is so powerful. It's We cannot just be turned loose on it and letting you know companies that are getting so much power in big tech like Google, like Facebook, like uh, Apple, like Twitter, we can't just let them have free reign over, you know, they're essentially making the laws within yep. their own land. You know, no longer is, can you really separate the physical world from the virtual world? Like they are, they're married very closely together now. They're almost yeah. one and the same, you could argue. And yeah. it's, you know, there's laws in the, in the physical world that the, you know, here in the United States, the government is the one that's creating and, and, you know, enforcing those laws. But in this virtual world, it's, you know, the laws still apply to an extent, but uh, now these big tech companies have a lot of the influence and a lot of the say and are making a lot of the decisions. And I think more and more people are not okay with that. And I yeah. think going forward, it's going to be, you know, more people are going to understand the implications of that. And we're going to see more and more problems arise. You know, I think the capital insurrection was the first major thing that made everyone wake up and be like, oh shit, like, look what we've created here, you know? And then we've got to figure out the laws. Yeah. No, I say, I think it's scary. Like in some ways the government doesn't know how this stuff works. Like if you listen to, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Jack in front of Congress, like some of the questions are like, so you could take down a tweet, but it would, you know, someone could have still screenshotted it. Like there's, there's questions like in, in the it's vein bad. of that. And it's like just, you know, a, a base misunderstanding of how these things work. Um, and we trust the government to protect us. Um, and they, they just need to know where the world is going because like you said there, it is such a meld of, of the internet and the physical. So there needs to be that involvement. I, I agree with you, Evan, that, you know, the, the, the players in the space, the companies can be involved, but there needs to be third party. Um, because at the end of the day, like, even if it was, I'm, I'm just using the government as kind of, you know, the default oversight, like even if it was the government working with, the Reddit censorship department, let's say, well, the Reddit censorship department still has a mandate to make Reddit money because they're part of the company and like content that is controversial gets eyeballs, which makes money. So there needs to be something just completely separate that is honestly separate from the forces of the market to control, you know, what's, what's deemed dangerous or not. Somebody has got to figure out like, time 
as well. So like Donald Trump, if he continues to be banned, that's complete bullshit. Like if Donald Trump is not allowed to be back on the internet, like that is ridiculous. Same thing with Parler. Like if, if you, you got to give these people like time limits to make decisions and fix what the mistakes that they were, uh, because it's just like in real life, like you're not going to send somebody to jail for life for a particular crime that that's, you know, you know, nobody was killed. You know what I mean? I mean with, with Donald Trump, I mean, people were hurt, uh, but he didn't directly do that. And, you know, these major platforms have an opportunity to de-platform and take the voice of one of the most powerful people in the world. Even when he's not a president, he's still one of the most powerful people in the world, influential people in the world, whether you like it or not, that's the facts. And if they're allowed to keep somebody like that off the internet because they don't align with some of his opinions, and yes, he made mistakes, I don't agree with that at all. So that's where like the thing is, is like these companies cannot be making these decisions. And if they are, uh, then they've got to have some kind of oversight that has the um, at least the end say. Like they can have input, but you can't let these people make these decisions because at the end of the day, there's going to be bias uh, and, and they can't make the right decisions if there's no diversity. Yeah. And I think just to clarify there, like we talked about this on our Friday update after the insurrection had actually happened. Donald Trump did, did need to be removed at the time with the current circumstances, but a lifetime ban to say you can never come back, that – it just seems very, very extreme, and I think that's a slippery slope to go down. Yeah, to deplatform somebody off the internet is—I uh, can't imagine something worse uh, happening online. Yeah. Like to just be erased from the internet is not okay. Doesn't matter what a person did. Like you got to give them time to realize their mistake and correct themselves, and then you got to let them on. Like it's like giving somebody a death penalty. It's obviously not killing somebody, but it's killing their digital presence. Yeah. And nowadays, digital presence is so valuable. One thing, one thing I just thought of, like in relation to this, we're thinking of you know how social media, um, you know, could be censored or could be dangerous. Are we even limiting you know the conversation we need to have with that? Like social media is changing. Like let's use Clubhouse as an example. There's no posts on Clubhouse. Trump or anybody else couldn't post something like he would say it. And then it would be gone, but then somebody else could repeat it because they heard him say it in a clubhouse room. Like, I think any any action that's taken needs to consider just these technological advances that we almost can't even consider yet. And it's just going to have to be a constant updating of rules and a constant reimagining. And that's just going to be a challenge that we've never had to deal with before. Yeah, which is why it needs to be by people who really inherently understand the power of technology and where things are. We got to get people like Mitch McConnell and like we got to have like... Term limits for these people that are just exactly. dumbasses. Exactly. Like Mitch McConnell has no business being in the government anymore. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of the Senate that just is, needs to go drive around their two hundred thousand dollar Mercedes uh, into their mansions and just retire and go away. Yeah. Okay. Uh, moving on. That was a thanks, Joseph, for that question. That was a great question. That was a great discussion. Uh, moving on to our buddy Sam White. Uh, Sam, the DJ, Sam Story. Go check him out at the Roxy. The Roxy. The Roxy. That's one of my top spots. No question. <laughs> Bells. And uh, I still got to get there. You, we'll get you there. We'll get you there. It opened the weekend after I was down there. He uh, he DJed for the first time a couple weeks ago. Absolutely killed, killed it. it. Uh, last week I was there again. Killed it. So he's. I love what they're doing. Uh, the Roxy's a cool spot. Go check it out. Okay. His actual question now. Um, he asks, "How is understanding rapidly changing technology related to success in business?" I think Great we can question. answer this one pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, it's essential. <laughs> businesses are being built on top of software. So when you think of a business, a business is made up of people and processes. And in today's day and age, those processes are 
enabled and done through software. Uh, those processes are now more efficient, they're now more transparent, and they're more effective uh, using software. So if you want a business that is able to work into the future, uh, you've got to think of it as it's being built using software. Uh, there's no such thing anymore as a business that's not a tech company. If somebody is starting a business and you don't view it as a tech company, uh, you're, uh, I'm not going to say you're going to fail, but I'm going to say you're not thinking of it correctly. Uh, because every business has to be enabled by technology. Again, uh, if you're a retailer and you have a physical brick-and-mortar store and you sell T-shirts and you don't have a CRM, you're messing up, and you have to have a CRM. So you know, to answer your question, Sam, uh, businesses are built using software that enable their processes and their people. Yeah, and I think to kind of elaborate on that, being able to understand you know, the implications and the possibilities of technology uh, even within business, but without out, outside of business as well, you know, every, it's hard to kind of separate your business life from your personal life nowadays. Like everything is just kind of stirring around in one big pot. Uh, I think having a core understanding of technology allows you to have an understanding of, oh my gosh, this is where this could go five, 10 years down the road. Okay. Here's a trend I need to start paying attention to. And then you get ahead of trends and then that's how you really establish a lot of success in life, I feel like. Yeah. Imagine trying to start a business, even if it's something like, I don't know, a painting company, like the most analog thing. Imagine using no technology <laughs> to start that business. I, I literally don't. We're not capable of thinking about that, but the people that, you know, a lot of the founders that run painting companies don't probably, you know, they're still using notebooks and. Yeah, for sure. But like, I can't, I couldn't fathom. How would I even start an LLC without my computer? I have to go to like the, the courthouse. I can't even fathom, you know, doing that. And you obviously take that to further, like talk about CRMs, talk about social media marketing, like we did, like, I can't imagine it, but to compete in today's space, it's, it's just absolutely essential. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think that's one that we can all pretty inherently agree on that is super important. So we'll, uh, unless any, either of you guys have anything to add to that, we'll leave it at that. No, that's good. Okay, perfect. Uh, moving on to the next one from a good friend of ours that's involved in the community, um, Isaac Meisner. He asks, if we could interview anyone in the world, who would it be? I'm not going to limit ourselves to that is alive right now. So uh, if you guys have any. Wow. I, I any was. People that are but in the past. Huh. I, I was about to, but my answer would have been way too cliche, and I'm trying to kind Can of... Can I guess your answer? For this. What were you going to say? What? Yeah, go ahead. Elon Musk. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, that would be sick. Um, I want you guys to answer first, though. Go ahead, Evan. It's thought-provoking. Uh, I got mine. Uh, so, I've kind of got, like, a few people that I've always looked up to. Um, Elon Musk um, is, is definitely up there. Um like people like LeBron James, you know, the way he's carried himself throughout his career, being so professional. And complained at every uh, being play. Being such a great athlete. You know, professional like, like that. that. Yeah, well, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, let's say Bill Gates. I think he's one of the geniuses, you know, of our time. Uh, but somebody that I think is an equal genius that a lot of people hate, but a lot of people love. Uh, I want to talk to Kanye. Um, Kanye West is somebody that I really look up to uh, in a lot of ways. Um, because he is a creative genius. Uh, I, I value creativity a lot. I've never seen anybody as creative as him. Uh, Elon Musk is probably, you know, close, close to him. Um, but he's also very technical. Uh, Kanye West is um, just somebody that uh, is, is an anomaly of a human being. Uh, he's an extremely intelligent person, but people don't look at him. Some people don't look at him that way. Uh, but I think he's a genius, and I'd love to just, 
understand what it's like to have a conversation with somebody like that. That is in a different field. Uh, his brain is not normal. Uh, there's just something there about people like Kanye and, and, and Elon Musk that, uh, you know, the rest of us can't understand until I feel like you're able to sit down and have a conversation with him. Um, so I can't even imagine what that would be like. You know, you can watch Kanye talk with uh, Joe Rogan, um, but you can't really put yourself in Joe Rogan's shoes necessarily. Um, and so I would want to be interviewing Kanye would be my answer. You have no idea where that conversation would go. And that's kind of the beauty of it. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, it's because with other people you ask, you, you would ask like the same, you would ask common questions like, was, you know, how'd you grow up? Where's your background? You know, what do you enjoy? Uh, but for him he would own the conversation. I don't know. It, it's just, what would you ask him? Yeah. You know? No, you, you could like, I don't know if that was a hypothetical question or not, but I'm thinking about it and I have no idea. I think I would just want him to talk. I'd be like, how are you Kanye? And then I think there would be an hour conversation <laughs> just stemming off of that. It should be wild. I would want him to dive into what creativity is for him. Yeah. Uh, because he taps into creativity that, uh, you know, at least in our lifetime, in my opinion, we haven't seen anybody else be able to tap into uh, across multiple fields like that. In a way I feel bad for him, which is kind of, it's kind of funny saying you feel bad for like a multimillionaire, but billionaire. Yeah. Um, with easy. Yeah. Um, people don't understand. I mean, clearly we don't understand, but I think we, we get that his mind is just working differently. And I don't want to like fanboy about Kanye cause I think all three of us love him, but it's clear that just like his artistic mind is something that impacts the rest of his life too. And it's, it's hurt him in a way. So I kind of feel bad for that. Yeah. Um, but my answer, uh, Logan, you saying, let's open it up to people who may not be alive, had me thinking. And I think my answer would be Walt Disney. When Ooh, I was a kid. Great answer. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with Disney World. Um, I, I, maybe as every kid is, but being me, like I started researching, I started wanting to know more about it, which of course led me to, to Walt Disney and, you know, researching his life. He has such an interesting life, but I think what, what really makes me, um, you know, kind of look up to him is, I mean, he literally built worlds. Like he built so many franchises. He built a movie empire. He built physical worlds. He built, uh, you know, a merchandising empire like the world had never seen at the time. Um, all around joy and happiness and the the characters and the thing that he liked. Um, and just being that innovative. I mean, the idea of a theme park and the way that he built it was extremely innovative. Animation, the way he was doing it technically was innovative at the time. The idea that he could be so innovative, um, yet so family friendly, so accessible for everybody. Um, it's just, it's amazing. And like, I would love to just be with that kind of entrepreneur who was accessible yet technically above everybody else at the same time. Great answer. That's a good one. Absolutely. Um, I think mine's going to be Steve Jobs, which is still kind of a cliche answer. I, I ping pong back and forth between a couple. Um, I think Neil Armstrong would be a great interview. I just, I've always idolized space. That was kind of one of them that popped into my head. Um, but to be able to talk to somebody that literally stepped foot on something other than earth would be I feel like that'd be an incredible to hear him just describe that. I would just ask, like, describe going to space, being on the moon, and that would be an incredible conversation. But Steve Jobs, I just think of anyone that has impacted the most lives uh, that I've been alive at the same time as, I can't think of many other people other than Steve Jobs. Like, this entire 
our entire what is going on here is powered by um, what Steve Jobs created. We're recording on an Apple MacBook. We're reading our notes off of an Apple MacBook. I was slacking you off of my Apple iPhone and just started an absolute revolution of technology. And, you know, the way that this that Apple has grown since then and just the vision that he instilled into Apple, I just don't think it could be understated. And the way he talks as well, you know, any of his speeches that you'll go and listen to, I feel like the interview would be just so robust and packed with really awesome wisdom. And uh, yeah, mine would be Steve Jobs. Seeing him answer past interview questions, he's he's an awesome interviewer. He comes mm-hmm. up with, he throws some them some curveballs that are just genius responses. Um, and I, I love his interviews. But yeah, you know, I think you're right. Uh, there's not many people that have impacted as many people as uh, Steve Jobs. You know, you got Jeff Bezos, um, who, you know, AWS is touching everybody every second of the day. Uh, you've got uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who's connected to almost 3 billion people. Uh, you've got somebody like Larry Ellison, who uh, built the, the database that so many companies are built on. People don't know about that. Oracle. Um, and then uh, there's one more I'm I'm forgetting, but uh, yeah, I mean he's he's got to be up there with the people who are, Larry uh, Larry Page uh, at Google um, and Sergey Brand at Google. But yeah, Steve Jobs. Uh, well, I heard an awesome quote that the smartphone uh, is the greatest uh, device ever created because it was the 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 biggest platform that you could possibly create. It's the platform you carry around in your pocket. Yep. You know that that's the biggest most important part. I'm excited to watch Apple get into like the metaverse and AR and VR and kind of take that platform a step further. I think that'll be kind of our our children's, I don't know, that'll be our children's iPhone. I, I kind of pictured that. So exciting stuff ahead. But yeah, that was, a, I appreciate that question, Isaac. That was a really, those are some really cool and thoughtful answers. So uh, moving on to the next one, another technical one that none of us are really qualified to answer, but we're going to have a discussion about <laughs> it anyway. Uh, my friend Trent Woods, who is uh, in the Air Force right now doing a really cool computer science role of some sort. Sorry, Trent, I don't know your exact role. Um, but he asks, will AGI, which stands for Artificial General Intelligence, ever actually be achieved? Some researchers feel very passionately, yes, and some very passionately, no. Some say maybe in a thousand years. Some say maybe in ten years. That's a big one. Artificial general intelligence. That's uh, that's a big one. That's something that's starting to get a lot more traction. Um, you know, we've we pulled up a little research report. We'll lead off with that, and then I think Evan has some really good insights on this GPT three. GPT three, and then AlphaGo is another big one. AlphaGo. Let me pull up this study that we found. Okay, so we found a study from two thousand and nine that interviewed 995 experts in the field of artificial intelligence. And just some like quick bullet points from the study. Of those 995 experts, uh, 10% think that AGI is likely to happen by 2022. This was taken in 2009. It's now 2021. I don't, I don't think AGI is going to be uh, here in the next year. Um, the share jumps up to 50% for 2040. And then uh, by 2075, 90% of experts believe that we're going to reach artificial general intelligence. And that's an old-ass survey, though. It is an old survey. I would like to see the, update, the updated uh, numbers on that. Did you find anything on that? It looks like you're looking at something. Um, I did read a Verge article that came out in 2018 that 23 of the top AI experts in the world uh, were asked when it was going to happen. Uh, the average was 81 years, so 2099 was the average. 
Wow. Um, 50% chance that uh, it'd be built um, 2020 by 2029. So, you know, it's all across, it's all across the board. Uh, there's nobody. 2029 that, is pretty quick. Yeah, it's pretty quick. Um, so it's kind of all over the place. Uh, nobody really knows the answer because nobody really has figured out yet how to map. Uh, one of the quotes is, you know, can you map the human brain? Because in order to uh, create a general intelligence, the only thing in the universe that we know of that has general intelligence is the human brain. So how how can we possibly build general artificial intelligence if uh, we haven't done that yet? If we don't even know about we don't know. We only know a sliver about the human brain. If we don't, if we only know a sliver about the human brain, how can we replicate it? Uh, and so, I guess the answer would be: Well, you create artificial intelligence to map the brain and study the brain, and use you know image recognition and study you know electrical pulses and stuff like that. And but I don't know the answer. Um, what I will say though is uh, this is for the audience to go watch and learn about two things. Uh, if you want to learn about artificial intelligence and where it's at right now and how fast it's moving. Uh, go study GPT-3 and what OpenAI is building. So OpenAI is a company that was established by people like Elon Musk um, and Sam Altman and several others that are the best artificial intelligence experts in the world. And they created OpenAI because there's a uh, fear that if there is not a company that is building artificial intelligence for the general public and making it open source, then a company like Google could come across and develop general artificial intelligence and just absolutely dominate the world. Uh, because the first people to to, to develop, you know, artif- art, uh, general artificial intelligence is uh, going to dominate. Uh, that changes what it means to be human. That changes uh, everything. Uh, the world's no longer the world after that happens. Uh, it's something different. Um, and so the first person to create that is going to have a level of control that we actually can't imagine. Uh, and so what OpenAI is trying to do is make sure that doesn't happen in the wrong hands, and they're trying to open source it. And so they created something called GPT-3 that I really encourage people to read about. It's probably the most powerful uh, artificial intelligence that's been created to date. Essentially what it did is it scraped the entire internet, uh, read every single word on the internet, uh, and has created an, uh, a way for businesses to plug into it and use that data. Uh, so basically, again, they scraped every, every single thing on the internet related to text. Uh, and so an example of how somebody would use that would be um, a researcher or a student, let's say a student. You're a student and you've been tasked to write a 20-page paper on how um, Bitcoin is related or similar to a religion. And by the way, throw in, uh, let's say, the the example I remember was throw in um, Islamic uh, terrorism. Just throw it in there. And by the way, write 20 pages about this. And it'll write uh, a research report based on what you tell it. And you cannot distinguish the research report that GPT-3 wrote from what a human would write. It's impossible. You can't tell the difference. That's how powerful it is. So you just tell it to do something. You write a sentence. Write me a paragraph about uh, Jesus and you know how he did this. And it'll just go scrape the internet. And a few minutes later, or a few seconds later, boom, you've got a paragraph. That's some crazy stuff that uh, the world hasn't seen yet. That came out uh, in the last couple of years. How many of our college student listeners are listening right now and going to Google on their phone and typing how do I use GPT-3? <laughs> yeah, GPT yeah figuring yeah. it out. The, the downside of GPT-3, I think you kind of alluded to there, is that it's only text-based, yeah. um, which there's two considerations there. One, it's only text-based in the things you train it. So like every time somebody new accesses it, 
they have to train it. So if they wanted to train it to write research reports, like you said, they would feed it a thousand research reports and it would understand and it would be able to do it itself. But if someone else separately trained it to write contracts, it wouldn't be able to think like, okay, how would I translate this contract into a research report or vice versa, you know, just as an example. So there's still kind of that, that limited line, I guess, to, to illustrate it, line of intelligence, which is where it then becomes difficult to be general intelligence. But on the flip side of that, they use GPT-3 to make images now. There's something called Dolly, which OpenAI created with GPT-3. And it basically just translated images into text because that's what it can understand. And then it made some algorithm to, you know, one pixel equals this in text. And it would feed it images through that algorithm. And then GPT-3 could spit out text, turn it into images, and make, like, lifelike pictures. And you could say... I want it. I want an image of a cat that looks illustrated and it would do that. You say, I want an image of a cat wearing a t-shirt that looks like a photograph and it could do that. So like we're getting there and I think quicker than we thought. It's also scary because if you think about what uh, uh, software development is, it's, it's a language. Uh, and so people are using GPT-3 to just develop websites, uh, front-end websites. So you can say, develop me a website that has a call to action button at the top with a picture of an elephant uh, and by the way, write me some copy that relates to a CRM and how, why people need CRMs. And it'll just generate a website for you without you doing any work. So that's the kind of stuff that uh, it's capable of. So, Another thing people need to look into um, is a documentary. I think it's on Netflix. It's on YouTube. It's on uh, several different platforms called AlphaGo. Uh, this was uh, a big moment in history because the thing about AlphaGo was it happened way before anybody expected it to work. So what they did was there's a game called Go. Uh, it's more popular in Asia and, and Europe than it is here, um, especially in Asia. But essentially, there are uh, an infinite amount of moves on the board. So what it what that means is it takes some creativity to win this game. It takes, uh, you can't create an algorithm to win the game, uh, a, a defined algorithm. There's no rules that you can just apply to it. It's creativity. There's uh, moments where uh, you can make a move that doesn't make any sense, but it ends up being smart later down the road in the game. So this was a, a challenge that people posed to developers in the artificial intelligence community to say, I bet you cannot develop an algorithm or an, uh, develop a way to beat the world's best AlphaGo player. And they did it way, way ahead of schedule, like 10 years before people expected it to work. And they destroyed the world's best AlphaGo player. Uh, and, and people were just mind blown. Uh, they had no idea how this was possible and how it happened so fast. But a company that ended up getting acquired by Google called DeepMind developed this. And to date, it's still one of the most powerful artificial intelligence uh, creations because, uh, again, it exhibited a f some kind of creativity. So it taught itself how to play this game uh, without much human intervention. Uh, and it just taught itself how to play and use creativity to beat a human. Uh, and, and it was just an unbelievable moment in history. So I encourage you to go watch that documentary because it'll open your eyes to how fast this stuff is moving, how complex it is and powerful it is. Because if you can apply that algorithm to teach itself to play a game with infinite moves, what else can it do? What else can it learn? Uh, and, and this is ultimately, again, what leads to general artificial intelligence. General artificial intelligence will be created by another art will be created by artificial intelligence i i think you know that's my perspective on it Yikes. so if you create the artificial intelligence that creates the general artificial intelligence 
you know, it, it, the signs are pointing that's going to happen faster and sooner. Um, that's going to happen sooner than people believe. And something that I think is scary is when you relate that to deep fakes and then you can't believe anything unless you see it in person. Like that, uh, the Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise one oh going around God. is if you pretty have, freaky. Search Tom Cruise deep fake. If you haven't seen this yet, it's gone viral. So you probably have, but that stuff is crazy. And to kind of take all this and condense it and throw it back to Sam's question, you know, relating that to what Evan was talking about, about being able to build a website. If you one, know this stuff exists Two, understand how it's working. And then three can educate yourself enough to actually use it. I mean, just imagine the advantage that you have over those that don't going into the next five to 10 years. So that's, that's why we're so passionate about learning this stuff and about talking about this stuff and trying to educate other people about it is exactly what Sam's saying here. We yeah, just, look at the world's richest people. Yeah. The only person that's not technically savvy in the top like 10 is uh, Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. <laughs> Everybody else, tech companies, tech, tech, tech moguls. And he hires the people to be tech savvy around him. Yep. yep, exactly. What do you guys think of the statement, um, once we achieve like the artificial general intelligence, that it, as soon as you achieve that, it instantly becomes like a superhuman intelligence is that I mean, it's more that, than that. It becomes it transforms the world. society. Like it, it's singularity. It's, it's, it's singularity. singularity. Yeah. It's, That's what I've heard. Nobody can. Uh, nobody has any way of comprehending what happens when there is a uh, something that is all knowing and all powerful. That uh, you don't even like. There's no way to, to understand that is what terrifying. would happen. <laughs> yeah. Does AGI immediately mean singularity, or is there a difference there? No, there's not. There's not a difference. Singularity is essentially when you create, uh, yeah, general artificial intelligence that can, you know, it, it's a new thing. You know, it's a new, it, it's, uh, it's, it's like artificial intelligence. This like the only thing <clears throat> that compares to the invention of artificial intelligence is electricity and the internet. Like the fact that during our lifetime, artificial intelligence has been developed in a way that's actually super useful and powerful is like watching electricity be created. Uh, and people don't think of it that way, but it is that level of an invention. And when it reaches the point that it's general artificial intelligence, we, there's no way for us to know what happens. It's just, it's the next phase of the universe. Yeah. Crazy. We can't stuff. imagine what Crazy that would be stuff. like. You wouldn't have to work. You wouldn't have to no. do anything. Like, what does that look like? What it, yeah. What do humans do at that point? Yeah. That's what I'm saying is like, it just changes. Changes everything. It changes what a human is. It does. Okay. This was an awesome discussion. To those who submitted questions, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, please reach out to us. Let us know what you thought of our responses to your questions. To those who uh, thought this was cool and want to submit questions, just start sending them to us frequently and we'll start keeping a document of them and we'll just start regularly doing some audience question episodes. So give us uh, some feedback too. Like if you've got give feedback, us some feedback, like let us know. Let us know. DM us, uh, middletechpodcast at gmail.com. Email us, DM one of us on on Instagram, on Twitter, anywhere. It's easy to get a hold of us. So we want to talk to we want to talk to our listeners. We want to engage with the audience. Please do that. Um, but other than that, anything that you guys feel worth plugging before we hop off here? We've got some cool series coming up: the real estate deep dive. Be on the lookout for that. We've got two episodes out of the developer deep dive, which we're very proud about. We got Justin Hall hosting that. Um, a lot of cool stuff going on with Middle Tech right now, guys. We're very excited about it. Subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Middletechpod.com. You got to sign up right there. there. We send that every Friday. Absolutely. We'll be getting some new merch here soon. So you guys can be swagged out, uh, hanging out, hanging out in the startup community, either in Lexington or wherever you are. Um, Cool. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you guys enjoyed this. We'll see you next week.